Welcome back to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel, and today we are pleased to have our guest, John Patterson, with us. John is on the board of directors of the Innocence Project of Florida, an organization, as you listeners know, very close to my heart. He is a partner in Schutz and Bowen Law Firm, which deals in commercial real estate, banking, and business law. And John was also former president of the Florida Bar Foundation and on the board of the Florida Bar Foundation for 10 years. Thank you, John, for giving us your precious time today. I do appreciate it. Uh, and thanks for being our guest. Well, thank you, Harriet. My pleasure. Welcome. So one of the things I wanted to ask you, among many, um, is how did you choose your profession? Well, it was an interesting journey. At first, I wanted to be a uh, an engineer and then an architect. And then as I um, was in high school, I had friends whose parents were lawyers and that was in the 60s uh late 50s and early 60s and several of those people and this was in the south took some pretty courageous stands to uh, take a position on integration and race relations that really bucked the white audience at the time, the white community. And I thought, that's really gutsy. Um, so that started me thinking about a lot of things. And then that was, that was it. I decided I wanted to be a lawyer. But then, but you specialize in uh, commercial real estate and banking, et cetera. So why that and not maybe something different in, in the law? Well, I started out, Harriet, doing um, a lot of different things. I did uh, divorce work. Uh, hmm. I did trials. I did appeals. And it was really, uh, I, I really wanted to be a trial lawyer and, and uh, an appellate lawyer. And that's what I did for the early part of my practice. But I always like business. I've always had a soft spot in my heart for small business people, and they are the biggest employers in the country. They make things work. They get things done. And so I, my wife bought a business when we were very young. Um, she was very successful in it, so I, I gravitated towards that, but I did trial work in that field, um, less domestic relations, more in terms of commercial trial work. Mm -hmm. And then finally, I stopped doing trial work about six years ago. I see. And the reason that I thought you would be a wonderful guest today is that your path has brought you to the Innocence Project of Florida. Now you're a new member of the Board of Directors. Um, how far back were you aware of the Innocence Project of Florida and 
the work that they did? Uh, back to the inception, which I believe at least Innocence Project in Florida was 2003, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. That is correct. And I knew Sandy Dallenberg, who was the founding director uh, from a number of different things. And he was somebody that I really admired till his death, I believe it was last year. It was. And um, so I knew the work that was being done. Um, Two of my partners in the firm that I was with before Schutz and Bowen for 40 years did criminal law or had criminal law background and experience. So in one of the key cases in criminal law, my partner, Charlie Livingston, had taken that case all the way to the United States Supreme Court. It was the right of prisoners to uh, have access to law libraries while in prison. Mm. And so I was aware of the issues. I was aware of what can happen and what can go wrong. Um, So I've, I've... course followed that and I was on the board of the Bar Foundation which was the principal funder of the Innocence Project was and is. That's correct. So yeah so I I've followed it throughout my focus was on civil access to justice but I was certainly aware of the issues in criminal access to justice and in the what happens apart from access to justice and the when things go wrong and that's what the innocence project is about not only when things go wrong but how do you prevent things from going wrong what are the best practices you always have i don't care how good the system is and how well it's funded you're going to always have miscarriages of justice that will occur it's a very human endeavor And we're, of course, humans and we're fallible. So it's important to have organizations like the Innocence Project that can find when we have these miscarriages, when when things go wrong, even in the best of systems, and do our best to right those wrongs. That's true. Now, before 2003, when the Innocence Project of Florida began, um, if you went farther back than that, were you aware that there were people in prison who were innocent and shouldn't be there? Well, sure. I mean, you would certainly as a lawyer, you'd almost have to be brain dead not to know that. And I mean, miscarriages of justice have occurred from, from the beginning. No, uh, in the United States, elsewhere, they happen. Sure. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, interesting you say that, though, because um, in the reading I've done when I teach classes about the criminal justice system, there was a belief, I, I don't exactly know how far back, but say before Barry Sheck stepped up to the plate in 1992, when he formed the first Innocence Project in the country, that there weren't that many people in prison who were innocent. Most of them were 
guilty. So a very small, tiny minority. And I, I think that has shifted in, in terms of a belief system uh, in, in this country, certainly well, now. I think that Go ahead. In Tallahassee, and uh, that's part of the Deep South. I lived there until I went to college. I went to college in North Carolina. I've never lived. Uh, I went to basic training in North Carolina. I've never lived in any particular period of time outside of the South. So the the real focus uh, of, of my attention in terms of the criminal law system and where it goes wrong is in the racial disparities that occur. And you know, you you have a one of those white hot cases with racial overtones of, of, of alleged black on white rape. Uh, things can go very wrong in those, and uh, you almost have to be oblivious to history not to realize that. Even growing up. Where where did you grow up, John? I was born in Tallahassee, and I lived there until I was 18. Then I went to Duke University and spent four years there, and then back to Florida. So, mm -hmm. that's, so you, uh, what, did you were you were you aware of racism in various forms as you grew up, or when you went to college? Oh, well, you again, uh, of course you're aware of it. I was aware of it. Um, I was really reshaping my views to when I was in high school that in a way that did not reflect either my parents' views or most of my friends. I, I had come to the conclusion it was wrong. Um, when I got to college, I was... Um, uh, my views on that accelerated and perhaps matured. Um, one of my good friends in college was a guy by the name of Harry Boyd. Uh, Harry's father was on Martin Luther King's staff, and um, Harry got me involved in the civil rights movement, or didn't get me involved, I volunteered. Mm -hmm. um, so I was active in voter registration, and I was the president of the Duke chapter of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and uh, was was active in civil rights work in college. So, yeah, I very much knew what was going on. And I and I in the course of that, one of the things we were doing was voter registration work in the, uh, eastern North Carolina. And so. I was a foot soldier. I was going door to door, knocking on doors, trying to get people to register. And then there were the professional soldiers who were the lawyers. Uh, they were law students and professors, a uh, good number of them there from Georgetown University uh, College of Law. And one of the organizers of the whole effort there, a African-American couple, the Johnsons, um, were, uh, were business people there. Well, actually, he was. Reed was 
a business person and his wife was a teacher, she got fired for her activities. She sued. And if you, uh, Willa Johnson versus, I've forgotten who the defendant was, but her case went all the way to the Federal Court of Appeal before her wrongful termination was overturned. So I could, I could see the positive power of law and lawyers uh, as, a, as advocates for people's rights, fundamental rights, and... That's, that's a very, very good point you make about the law, that if we can't legislate a change, then where are we? Uh, if we have some teeth in the law, uh, that, that really makes all the difference. You mentioned the uh, Florida Bar Foundation, and um, I wanted you to tell us more about what that group does and your role in the foundation? Well, let's take the first part of it. What does the foundation do? Right. Um, it's, it's a long story, but let me really get to perhaps the modern history of the Florida Bar Foundation. And it, it's over 50 years old. Um, and the Bar Foundation has three missions. It's primarily access to justice. And in order to achieve that, there are three prongs to that. Uh, one is the funding of legal aid organizations, of which there are about 23 local organizations throughout the state. Every region of those 23 regions, everyone has a legal aid organization, some more than one. and so there is access to justice through a legal aid program everywhere in Florida in some measure, in some measure. So in order to fund those programs, the principal source of the funds are from lawyers' short-term short trust accounts. There's roughly $4.5 billion held by lawyers in the state of Florida in short-term trust accounts. Now that money used to generate a lot of funds. At the peak in about 2007, it was roughly $70 million a year. Um, however, the interest rates have plummeted, as everyone knows, so that really shrank to less than $5 million a year from 70. And that's caused a funding crisis with legal aid organizations, not only in Florida, but throughout the country. So, that's part of the mission is funding legal aid organizations. The other is improvements in the access to justice. And as a part of that mission, the Bar Foundation has provided funding to the Innocence Project. And the third is to encourage uh, participation by law students in legal aid and pro bono work. Um, and that has suffered because of the funding problems. Uh, but it's still a part of the mission of the foundation. And your role uh, in the uh, foundation? Well, I was I was on the board of directors for uh, ten years. I believe you mentioned the number. I'll take your word for it. And I was <laughs> I was president for a year. Um, 
And so I was really a caretaker of that position. Uh, the board, the board is approximately 20 people, um, who are lawyers, judges, and lay people. And, uh, they spend a lot of time on it. Um, I, I see. Um, the, the, uh, bar foundation, is that, um, the role of any bar foundation in the United States to do what you just described to help uh, legal aid groups, et cetera? Um, Harriet, interestingly, Florida was the first state to have a, an interest on trust account program and to have a bar foundation that was the recipient of those funds that would then use those funds to fund legal aid and to carry out the missions uh, that it carries, that it, that it accomplishes. So Florida was the model for the rest of the country. And every state has a foundation similar to the bar, Florida Bar Foundation. They may not be identical. Um, the funding, the participation may be voluntary in some states. Uh, it's mandatory in Florida. Uh, you don't, if you're a lawyer, you have to participate in the, uh, in the interest on trust accounts program. If you have a trust account, if you don't have a trust account, obviously you don't have to. So, um, yeah, that model is now um, pretty much universal in the United States. Interestingly, uh, Florida got the inspiration for this model from New Zealand. Huh. New Zealand, of all places. Why yeah, New Zealand? of all places. Yeah. Uh, they had the the light bulb went off someplace and they started the program. It got, um, it came to the attention of Sandy Dallenberg again and Reese Smith and some other leaders of the bar back in the, uh, back in the seventies. And one thing led to the other and the bar foundation got a favorable ruling from the internal revenue service thanks to the pro bono work of the late uh, Supreme Court Justice Arthur England, who was in private practice at the time. And so that's how it all got started. Mm, that's interesting. You, you mentioned pro bono. I, I was about to ask you a question about that. Um, do lawyers, generally speaking, I, I guess I would say criminal defense lawyers, are they in any way required to do pro bono work? Or is it strictly voluntary? It's, it's strictly voluntary, with this exception. Um, and let me give you an example of that. My partner, Charlie Livingston, who took the case uh, all the way to the Supreme Court, was in federal court on an entirely different matter in Jacksonville at the time. And the federal judge looked down from the bench and he said, Mr. Livingston, you're a bright young lawyer. I have just the case that I'm going to assign to you. <laughs> <laughs> and you really don't say no <laughs> to a judge who asks you to do that. And so Charlie uh, said, certainly your honor. And then that led to 
oh Lord, I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of hours that he spent on that mm. case. But <laughs> that, that so is, mm. in, in large, no, but there are exceptions like that. I would think. Um, the uh, Innocence Project of Florida, what is it about that group that motivated you to contribute to the work that they do? The, the necessity of having an organization like that to keep the system honest. Okay. And to try to prevent the system from being less honest than it should be. Maybe honest isn't the word. Um, it's it's more to, to function to the maximum degree that it can and where it doesn't function well to rectify that. When, when the system convicts somebody improperly, wrongfully, to do something about it. Right. And, and the Innocence Project uh, is the one to do that. Now, now we have a Conviction Integrity Review Unit that has um, joined us in a sense, and uh, they worked together on a, a recent case where an uncle and nephew were exonerated after serving 43 years, and what a great partnership that was. Um, have you met any of the exonerees from the Innocence uh, Project of Florida? Um, I met James Bain and also mm -hmm. Harriet at the event that you helped organize at Florida Studio Theater last year. There were other exonerees. There was one from Manatee County, if I recall correctly, that I met. But I've, James Bain is the one that I've had a chance to meet one-on-one, -on -one, not just shake hands, to talk to, to interact with Um what a lovely soul he is. Yes, he is. And and he his name somehow keeps popping up. We, we talked about him with uh, an interview I did uh, recently with Seth Miller's parents, and uh, they have gotten to know him well. And for the longest time, he was uh, out in the field by himself at 35 years behind bars. And now this uncle and nephew have gone past that with 43 years. Not not a club you want to be part of, that's for sure. But um, that's I, for sure. Yeah, I would very much like to have Jamie on the podcast to talk about his life experiences and how the what kind of impact the Innocence Project of Florida have had uh, has had on his life. Um, are there other? We're we're getting real close to the end of our time together, and I, I so appreciate your your willingness to join me today. Are there other nonprofit organizations that you are very passionate about? Well, I actually, I'm, I'm quite passionate about all that I, I, I've worked with. I'm on the board of Legal Aid of Minnesota, and that does, this is a civil legal aid organization for this 12th judicial circuit. And certainly they do yeoman's work. They're underfunded, uh, but they do great work. Um, another completely different thing that I've truly enjoyed is being on the board of Shan's Teaching Hospital and Clinic in Gainesville. That's the teaching hospital for the University of Florida system. Uh, 
Oh. And um, I've been on that board for seven years, and I've learned so much about healthcare, and uh, that that's been fascinating. Very different than than the Innocence Project. Yeah, very different. Is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners before we we close today? Yes, it. Uh, I would encourage your listeners to do something, to get on board, to make a positive change. The U.S. justice system, both criminal and civil, is truly in need of change. If you look at the World Justice Project's ratings of systems of countries, justice systems of various countries, our criminal justice system scores 23rd. Our civil justice system scores 30th. Now, surely we can do better than yeah, that. I would hope. Surely we can do better than that. I would hope. And I really think we're making some positive steps, particularly on the criminal justice side. I think we're slower on the civil justice side, but we're making some positive changes. Um, there's a bipartisan recognition that the uh, lock and up, get tough laws of the 1990s were a failure. And we need to be a lot smarter about what we do. We need to be evidence-based, not only on the sentencing uh, part of it, but also on the conviction part. We need need to be based convictions on evidence, on solid science, on good lineups, not flawed lineups. We need need to do it better. We do. We do. Well, I I do think there's much more attention to the criminal justice system. And that's part of my, my job is to uh, shine a light on these topics. And I thank you so much, John, for being with us today. It was a pleasure talking to you. Pleasure talking to you, Harriet. And thank you for shining that light. Don't let it go out. (laughs) All right. I won't. (laughs) And thank you listeners. See you next time on Pursuing Justice.